Well, this time I want to welcome you to this gathering of Crossway Church. We're glad to see you all here with us uh, today. If you are visiting with us, we especially want to welcome you as our guest. And we ask that at the end of the service, when we collect our offering, you don't feel any obligation to put uh, money in the plate. Uh, we simply ask that you would um, fill out a visitor connection card and put that in the plate as well. And uh, whether you're a visitor or a member uh, or you're here for the first time, if you have a prayer request... Uh, that you would like us to, to know about and to be in prayer with you about, uh, please uh, put that in the plate as well. Yes, it's a crying baby. It happens all the time. Uh, we're, we're, we're still up here, okay? Uh, because, not, I'm all, not because I'm not good looking, but because we're about to look to God's Word, and that's what we want to do now. So turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3, please. Colossians chapter 3. We have been looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians for the past few months. We saw him begin his letter by thanking God for the Colossian Christians, even as he reminded them of the truth they believed, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word gospel means good news. It's not a feeling. The gospel is not an action. The gospel is a message. It is news. It is good news because though we are sinners, though we are cut off from God and any kind of relationship with him condemned, for our idolatry and rebellion. God has sent Christ to be our Savior. He has sent Him to redeem us from our sins and the just penalty from our sins through Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh who died under God's wrath in our place, bearing the judgment that we deserve. He rose again from death because death could not hold Him. And God has now put Him as the sovereign Lord over all things, the one to whom we should worship and, and the one that we should serve. That is the gospel message that the Colossians believed. It is what moved them from being a people cut off from God to being a people right with God. From those who were his enemies to those who were now his children. From those who experienced spiritual death to those who now had spiritual life with God. And that message is the same message uh, that we believe today. This message of Christ. And Paul has reminded in the opening uh, chapters of this letter the gospel that the Colossians had believed. And he did that because that message was under attack from false teaching. There were those seeking to come and to say that Christ was great, but you needed something more than that. And Paul wanted to write and say, no, Christ is all that you need. If you have him, you need nothing else to make you right with God and to give you the fullness of spiritual life. And so he wanted to bring them back the very foundations of their faith. But he didn't leave them there. He didn't just remind them of the gospel. He also began to unpack what it meant practically for that gospel to change their lives. If you have trusted in Christ as Lord, then there are implications for how you live. You live with him as Lord. And so in chapters 1 and 2, he has reminded them of the gospel. And now in chapters 3 and 4, he is, he is telling them this is what it means to live a gospel-centered life. To have your life recalibrated. Not according to what we see out here, not according to our own thinking, but according to the gospel itself. And he's been applying that not just broadly, but to specific situations. And we find another specific situation in our text this morning at the end of... Colossians chapter 3 and even the beginning of chapter 4. And so I would encourage you to read these verses uh, to yourself as I read them out loud following along. Colossians chapter 3 beginning at verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless this reading of his word. Now, as we read that, as people living in the 21st century, we are immediately thrown into some context questions. What is going on in the text? Uh, What is Paul getting at, and how are we to understand this for ourselves. The first thing that we should remember is this comes right after he has talked about the family. He's talked about husbands and wives, parents and children, how they should be interacting with one another. And it might seem at first glance this is a pretty sharp break. He's gone from the family to talking about slaves and masters. Well, you know, okay, we're just moving along, Paul. Not at all. Because you have to remember this is the first century that he's writing about. There was very, not very often the nuclear family we think about in terms of a household. There was not just mother, father, children. No, there was mother, father, children, uncles, aunts, children, grandparents, and there were also slaves and their families, often all living in the same household. So when Paul is seeking to address the household of a Christian, he must talk not just about the, 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 the marital relationships, the blood relationships, but he must also talk about the, 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 the relationships between slaves and masters because that was part and parcel of the culture in that day. Now, the other thing that we need to think about too is that this issue of slavery, which our own country has been marred by, is very different than the slavery that was going on in uh, the first century. It's not the exact same. And in, in fact, uh, to begin with, slavery was far more prominent in the Roman Empire than it ever was in our society. In fact, it was so woven into the fabric of, of the culture, of, of how things ran, it is believed that no less than one-fourth, perhaps as much as one-half of every person in the Roman Empire was a slave. I mean, just put your mind around that for a minute, and it's staggering. For every four people in this room, one or two would be slaves. And the others would be those responsible for those slaves. That's amazing to me. It it is such a huge deal for Paul not to address it would have been odd. And so so we need to understand that there is a difference between uh, the slavery of today or uh, that, that was in our culture and the slavery of that day as well. Not just in terms of the numbers, though, also in terms of the practice. The slavery that exists in this country was based on ethnicity. That was not the case in Rome. It didn't matter what ethnic background you had, you could still be a slave. There was no bias when it came to Roman slavery. Secondly, slaves were often educated. In fact, some were very well educated. The thought was that if you were well enough off to own slaves, you shouldn't have to work. The slaves did all the work for you. So you might employ slaves to teach your children. You might employ slaves to be doctors for your family. They they would live right there. And you'd wake up with a cold. you walk down, knock on the door and say, hey, treat me. Uh, uh, They were very well educated sometimes. Third, slaves were sometimes even paid for their work. They sometimes earned a wage. Food and shelter were given always by their masters, but sometimes that there was enough that they could actually buy their freedom. Some slaves even accumulated enough wealth 
that they could hold property and be in charge of their own finances. And this leads to the last thing, and that is this, the difference between slavery in this country and slavery of, of the Roman Empire, and that is slavery wasn't permanent. Even if one was born into slavery, it was possible to buy one's freedom even by the age of 30. So there's a great difference, isn't there, between Roman slavery and, and modern-day slavery. And so we shouldn't ever try and read our own experiences, our own understanding back into the text. Nevertheless, I don't want you to feel like, I don't want you to walk away thinking that Roman slavery was just, you know, uh, you know all wine and roses. It, it, it wasn't that way at all. In fact, though, there are a few accounts that we have of mutual respect and affection between a slave and a master. For the most part, it was a hard life being a slave. It wasn't something nice. It wasn't just a job, it was slavery. A slave had limited rights and freedoms. He was viewed as nothing more than the property of his master. Just like a, a farm tool or a, an oxen or a sheep. In fact, in fact, one person wrote and said that you had, um, uh, they, they described the, the threefold list of tools for, in any person's house. There was the articulate, the inarticulate, and the inanimate. In other words, you had slaves who could talk, you had animals who could not talk, and you had simple hand tools or hoes or rakes or shovels or whatever. They're just viewed as a, as a thing for the master to use. If a slave was abused or injured by someone else, the person who did the injury could be fined, not according to the, the, the person injuring another individual, but according to property damage. Just like we would file an insurance claim today if our car was hit. One writer in ancient Rome records a supposed conversation between Socrates and Aristopus showing the, the way in which slaves were mistreated by their masters. He says, that is, Socrates says, is it not the case that they control any inclinations toward lechery by starving them, that is, by starving the slaves? And they stop them from stealing by locking up the places from which they might take things, prevent them from running away by putting them in chains, force the laziness out of them with beatings. In fact, if you did manage to run away, things were really bad. You could be tortured. You could even be branded. You could be burned like an animal with a letter symbolizing the Greek, the Greek or the Latin word for fugitive. Even crucifixion was allowed as a punishment for a runaway slave. Now, when we understand that cultural background, the question that should come to our mind is this. What does this have to do with us? Right? I mean, we don't have slaves today. At least I hope you don't. We need, we need to get together and talk if you do. Okay? Uh, but but we just as a, as a cultural thing, as a societal thing, we don't have slaves. We are not slaves. We don't own them. So what, what are we to do in the text like this? We just say, that's interesting. That was for then, and then we move on? Or do we linger Believing there's something here for us. That question is an important one because, frankly, when you read the Bible, there are more texts like this than you might imagine. Where something is going on, uh, at least the, the teaching is, is coming to something so obviously cultural, you may be tempted just to skip over it and feel like, that has nothing to do with me today. Large chunks of the Old Testament. You might be tempted to say, I'm not an Israelite. I don't live under the Old Covenant. Why should I bother to read this? I can't gain anything by it. It's historically interesting, but nothing more. But the reality is that's not the way that we should read the Bible. Because Paul said that's not the way we should read the Bible. He said every part of Scripture was profitable for us in our spiritual growth, for our understanding how we should live before God. And while I don't want to turn this into a, a lesson on interpreting Scripture, we do need to come down and just say simply this. When you approach a text like this where the, the surface elements are obviously not applicable, what you need to do is say, okay, what are the enduring spiritual principles behind this text? 
that can be transferred over to my life. What, what, what is the great theological truth that Paul is applying to this situation that I can apply to my situation? And when we read the Bible in this way, then every verse of every chapter of every book is still relevant for us today. And in the case of this text, I think there are principles of work and employment and management that can be seen in the practice of slavery that we can, be, that we can understand and, and bring into our own situations of modern-day jobs today. Understand this doesn't mean there's an exact degree of transfer. Again, this wasn't just a job. This was slavery. And it was different, and we need to understand that. Nevertheless, I think just in verse 24, we see this large principle that can be applied where Paul says, you are serving the Lord Christ. That and verse 25 come right in the middle, I think, of what Paul is saying both to slaves and to masters. It is a hinge statement moving from one to the other that both can apply to themselves. And regardless of what you are doing as a Christian, remember, you are not just working for a person. You are not just working with people. You are serving the Lord Christ. And with that as a foundational principle, then comes a Christian theology of work. Yeah, we have a theology of salvation, we have a theology of heaven, we have a theology of the end times, and Christianity has also a theology of work. What I mean by that is a biblical frame of thinking when it comes to work. What is it? How do we do it? Why do we do it? And as we walk through our text, we see two, two central themes, that, that are, or two, two central ways of thinking that come out of this. The first is from the perspective of the one who is a worker. The second is, is, is geared towards the perspective of one who manages other workers, a slave and a master, an employee and an employer. So the first thing that we see is this. We are to work as service to Christ. We are to work as service to Christ. And before we jump in here, again, we, we, need to, we need to try and put ourselves back in the situation as much as we can. So I want us to, to begin by thinking about what it was like to, to be a first century Christian in Colossae and to receive a letter from the Apostle Paul. Each church had its pastors, its elders, those who would open up the Old Testament and teaching and preaching they might also have a collection of Jesus' teaching or perhaps even uh, at this point one of the, the Gospels, likely Mark's Gospel. Either way, every week they, they would have known the teaching of the apostles and they would have opened up the Scriptures with an aim towards showing their fulfillment and application for those who are in Christ. But, but imagine hearing, maybe perhaps um, someone teaching through Isaiah and suddenly you hear a messenger has come in the middle of the week and he is there bearing a letter from the Apostle Paul. This was not going to be like any other sermon that you've heard. This is a new and fresh teaching from an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was one who spoke with the authority of the risen Christ into your life. And he has come now by way of messenger with this teaching. And so you settle in eager and ready to hear the message that is about to come to you. You listen to the unfolding teaching of of the letter and your mind is expanded and your heart is encouraged as you are reminded again and again of the amazing work of your Savior who just 40 years before died on a Roman cross for your sins and was raised back to life ascending to the right hand of God in heaven ruling over all things now as Lord. You follow the argument of the letter when suddenly you hear the pastor read the word slaves and your ears perk up. You realize this is about you. 
I mean, you've been listening to this letter and it has been, it has been helpful, it has been good, it has been food to your soul. But now Paul is speaking directly into your life. He has identified you and your way of life as one that he is going to target with his teaching. So from your seat on the floor, you kind of, you kind of reposition yourself. You, you kind of get, get yourself from being uncomfortable, uh, from being comfortable to uncomfortable. You, you, you lean forward. You, you're ready. What is Paul going to say about how to live as a Christian slave? In the Roman Empire. And you hear Paul, the pastor read Paul's words. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. At first the words sting and confuse. Isn't that what I've been taught my whole life? Isn't that what my master is drilling into me every day? Just obey in everything without question, without thought. But then the Holy Spirit begins to open up your mind. And he reminds you, didn't, Paul, didn't you just hear Paul say something else about slaves just a few minutes ago in this letter? Didn't he say something that was earth-shattering, that now there is no more slave or free? There is only Christ, and all who are in Christ are equal in him? And then suddenly, the words begin to coalesce. The thoughts about what Paul is saying begin to become clear as the other words wash over you. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he does, and there is no partiality. Suddenly, what Paul is meaning becomes clear, and that is this. Though physically you are in change, though in this life you are bound to an earthly master, the reality is you are free in Christ. You are not forever enslaved, serving an earthly person. You are free to serve your true master who is in heaven. Though outwardly you are in chains, inwardly you are free. You are free from the expectations of those around you, from the punishment and the consequences of what is going on, knowing that you have an eternal perspective now that lifts your eyes above your circumstances that you might see the reality of your freedom in Christ himself. And that means... Now, not just for you as the slave in the first century, but now as the worker in the 21st century. If you are a Christian, when you work, you are free to work without people pleasing. This is the, the first sub-point that we want to see here under working by serving Christ. You are free to work without people pleasing. Again, Paul says, slaves, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. And you can imagine how hard that would have been for a slave. If they were overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated, there would have been a real temptation not to put too much effort into what they were doing. If, if, if your, your, your master is mean and, and thinks of you nothing, as nothing more than a piece of cattle, you're probably not going to put in a hard day's work, job for him, right? You're not going to give it all you've got. Yet if you weren't caught working hard, you could be punished severely. And so it's not hard to picture in your mind's eye someone who is walking around, whenever the master's around, working, seeming to work hard, really uh, greasing the wheels, as it were, but, but only in his presence. When he's not around, you know, taking whatever the first century equivalent of a smoke break would be. Just kind of hanging out, do, doing nothing, talking shop with the other slaves. Okay? 
He's, he's seeking to be a, a people pleaser. He just wants that earthly master to be happy with him so that he doesn't get into trouble. Frankly, I think it's pretty easy to imagine that because it's pretty prevalent in our society today, isn't it? I mean, it used to be the old joke that you shouldn't buy a car made on Monday or Friday. Why? Because on Friday, people are just wanting to go for the weekend, and on Monday, uh, they're wishing they were back on the weekend. So they really don't care about what the job they're doing uh, on those days. Today, you can go to YouTube. It's filled with videos of people in back rooms at work goofing off in all kinds of ways when they're supposed to be earning their paycheck. All kinds of stupid shenanigans. Some of it that makes you never want to go to a public restaurant again. And yet, and yet, isn't it sad that probably most people today don't understand what it means to give an honest day's work? You know, it nearly blew my mind when my dad was telling me back in the 70s when the Reds had the big red machine going in Cincinnati baseball. And Johnny Bench, the catcher, had had a kind of an off year. And when it came time to renew his contract, he said, well... I love playing for Cincinnati. I know I had a bad year. Uh, for that next year's contract, just give me whatever you think I'm worth. Not going to happen today. Not ever going to happen today. We are in a culture that just wants something for nothing. And yet Paul is saying uh, into that mindset, it, it just being people pleasers, just doing it as eye service, not really caring about the job, not caring that you're actually trying to earn money for your employer to actually earn the wage that you're being paid. He says, no, don't. He says, you're, you're free from that kind of worry. It's now in Christ, you can work wholeheartedly because you remember for whom you're working. You're not just working for that guy with a tie who comes by to make sure you're doing your job. You are working for the risen Christ. He is the one that you are serving in what you do. Mother Teresa used to say that when she and the Sisters of Charity were tending lepers, cleansing wounds and healing sores, they had joy and endurance in such difficult work because they imagined it was physically Christ himself there in their presence that they were serving. Can you imagine how much different our jobs would be? If we had that kind of mindset, not necessarily that we imagine Christ was right there for us, but if we realized when we punched in that day, I'm not just here to earn a paycheck. I'm, I, I'm not just here to make my bosses happy. I am here to do this job of the glory of Christ serving him. Well, that would change everything, wouldn't it? And what Paul is telling the slaves, that's the mindset with which you come to work now. It's not just that I've got this master. No, you have the master that you are working for now. When we think this way, the most menial task suddenly takes on significant force. In other words, uh, some of you may be familiar with the phrase the Protestant work ethic, but you may not even know what that means. I mean, it sounds like it's something good, right? A work ethic that may be strong, but who knows? Maybe Protestants are dummies. Well, the reality is that Protestants were reacting against the medieval understanding that you had two different kinds of work. You had the sacred and you had the secular. Sacred work was priests, popes, and monks, people that gave their lives over to the work of God. That was the really important work. That was significance eternally. Everything else was secular, didn't really matter, had no significance. And the Protestants come along and just blow that up. And they say, that's, that's ridiculous. And they, they begin to tear down this wall between sacred and secular work. Why? They go right back to the Bible, as good Protestants are supposed to do. And they say, look, in Genesis, Adam is given work before the fall. So we don't ever think, oh, I hate work. I'll be glad the new heavens and the new earth. Not going to be any work. I wouldn't, don't, don't hold your breath. I have a feeling you're going to have responsibilities. 
the, the nice thing is there'll be no fall to make them arduous. Okay, there will be joy in them. But we are created and designed for work to get something done, to get our butts up in the morning and get moving and do something. That's what we're designed for. And so Protestantism said, it doesn't matter if you are a pastor in the pulpit or if you're a shepherd in the pasture. If you do your work in such a way that Christ is honored, that, that, you, that you use the resources he has put at your disposal for his glory, knowing you're serving not any earthly man, not even yourself, but God, then every vocation becomes sacred. Every vocation becomes an act of worship to God. It is a labor that is wholehearted and sincere rather than just doing something that will make others think of us a certain way. Regardless of what we do, if we are serving Christ in it, then it has dignity and we have worth in it. There are no second-class jobs when the job is done in a way that pleases God. Secondly, we are free to work without proper reward. We are free to work without proper reward. Paul says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Here's the reality of life. Teenagers especially, perk up and listen. It's not fair. Okay? You may hear that. Trust me, when you get older, you realize that that is the case every single day. Life is not fair, okay? That means there are sometimes you deserve something nice, you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. No one will ever be able to pay you for all the blood, sweat, and tears you put into a job if you're really working hard at it. Never. And you know what? Sometimes you may really work hard at something, and you may still get the boot. You may still get fired. Why? Because life's not fair. It's stained by sin. Therefore, what you should expect is unfairness everywhere. And I'm not saying that to make you bitter or or to put a chip on your shoulder and go out there and be all combative and fighting. I'm just wanting you to know the reality of life. It's not fair. Sometimes you're going to get yourself in situations and you're going to get what you deserve. And you're not going to like it. The judge is going to issue fairness and you're going to hate it. But you know what God also is unfair because we deserve hell, but he gives us Christ instead. So, so we need to come into even secular jobs in the midst of, of life not expecting total fairness all the time. In the Roman world, slaves were not rewarded with great remuneration for their labors unless it was an extraordinary situation. They had food and shelter and other basic forms of care, but many were not even paid for their labors depending on how they were acquired. A spoil of war? You're not getting a paycheck. No way. Some were paid, but many were not paid well. And you know that had to grade on people. I mean, it would grade on us today, wouldn't it? You, you go into a, a kind of a dead-end job where you're just barely making minimum wage, and yet you're putting 60, 70 hours in, you're thinking, man, this is just not worth it. I should be getting paid more for what I'm doing here. Life's not fair. Life's not fair for them or for us. Imagine having to be up long before your master, preparing the morning meals, doing business, tending to animals. You work all day and are still working after your master has long retired for the night. And what do you get at the end of the day, the week, the month? Nothing. There's no reward. There's no praise. There's no slap on the back. There's no blue ribbon for excellence. There's no wage commiserate with the labor. Now, again, when we think in terms of the day, I have to be frank here. Not that I'm any other way usually, but... um, Sometimes we have those jobs, but again, that's usually not where we're at. 
Usually we are disrespectful to our employers and we waste their money by the wasted time that we have at work. At least this has been my experience in the secular workplace. Sadly, with people my own generation. I know for those of you that are young, I seem like an old crusty dude. For those of you a little bit older than me, I seem like a wet behind the ears young pup. I know, I do have a generation in there though, okay? And from working secular jobs in a place like Meyer and a factory and whatever else, I can just tell you, there is not a strong work ethic today. Again, we want something for nothing. And I have to say, even in my own heart, I was very jealous of another seminary student because of he was older than me and uh, he had some life experience that I didn't. And so he was given the job of basically being the, the insurance at the UBS hub in Louisville. He essentially just sat in the office and got to do whatever he wanted in case there was some problem on the tarmac, the planes being refueled. He could go out, issue a command, it was okay, and everything was covered. So what does that mean? It means he got to stay up all night and do all of his seminary homework and come home and go to classes and go to sleep and spend time with his wife and go to work. Yeah, he got paid to study. I'm thinking, why couldn't I get that job, right? I mean, that's what you want, something for nothing. That's the, that, that's, that's the problem, that, that one of the problems that we have today. That's not exactly the problem that, that Paul is getting at here. In fact, it's just the opposite. And again, some of us have been there and maybe even are now here. We feel like we're working a job that is thankless and the, the small paycheck we get does not match your effort. And you know what Paul says? Even to those who are slaves, and so how much more to you? Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Remember, you're not working for that. You're not working for the paycheck. Your treasure is not in this life. It is in Christ and the life to come. That's what you're working for. So, so don't freak out when life isn't fair. Don't freak out when you don't get the reward you think you deserve. Because God is going to give you the reward. And you definitely don't deserve that. It has come to you by His grace. No, it's not an inheritance. It is the inheritance that will be your reward. Paul is speaking about the inheritance of eternal life with God himself. Think, now just think just of those terms, not just the, the, the reality of what it is. Think about the terms that Paul is using and how that would have been encouraging to a slave. They can't get an inheritance. Think, think of a master who has no kids and they, and they have been a slave for that master for decades and he dies a rich man. They get nothing. Zilcho. Unless... Unless the master formally adopted the slave as his son and heir. And that didn't happen often. And Paul is saying, in this life, you may never get an inheritance. But your heavenly father has one prepared for you. And it is far better than anything you would gain in this life. Therefore, as God's people, we are free to work without the proper reward. We don't get bent out of shape. We don't, we don't get angry. We don't bang on the floor and, and get wimpy and whiny and declare our rights, even in the political season, because we realize we don't worry about rights. Our Heavenly Father knows us and loves us, and He has sent Christ for us, and He has got a reward and inheritance for us that pales in comparison to anything government could do for us or employment. I know I've slid over a little bit, but let me just, let me just take this rabbit trail for a second and say, don't get uppity when it comes to being a Christian and politics and your rights in this country. There will come a day and this church will no longer have tax-exempt status. And the worst thing for us to do is complain and moan about it. What kind of testimony is that to Christ? When we feel marginalized as Christians in society and, oh, they doesn't listen to us anymore. So what? They didn't listen to these guys in the first century either. Why would we expect anything different? 
Don't, don't work for the reward in this life. Don't, don't expect things to be fair, whether it's in politics or life or specifically in the context of work. It's not going to be, and that's okay because a reward is coming. A reward is coming. Well, that's what Paul says about those who are slaves as we think about those who are workers today. But Paul is not done. He also has a word for masters, for those who would be in a broad way, the equivalent of employers today. And here's what we see, very similar. Number two, main point number two, manage as service to Christ. Manage as service. Now, I say manage, and that assumes a direct level of contact with employees that might not be the case all the time. Uh, it just it was a word that seemed to fit. In other, well, my point is here, the principles are not limited to someone that has the title manager, okay? It doesn't matter if they're the CEO of the Ford Motor Company or the shift supervisor at McDonald's on Euclid Avenue. The principles here are the same. It deals with how you view and treat employees. And again, we have to remember the original setting for this. It's the relationship between slaves and masters. And I think when we understand that and work through this last verse, chapter 4, verse 1, we will see we might think slaves had the harder time, but it was the masters who had the heaviest burden placed on them by Paul in this text. First of all, if you're going to manage a service to Christ, you're going to manage with equity. You're going to manage with equity. Paul says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Now think about what Paul is saying there to a slave master. Think about how countercultural that would have been. He says, treat your slaves like people, not property. Everybody else around you, all your friends, when you gather together at the marketplace, they'll say, they're just, they're just things. Some may have even led them around with chains around their necks or their legs so they didn't run off in the marketplace. They would go and pick something up, carry this home for me. I mean, just, just, just nothing. And Paul says, no, no, no. Treat them with equity. Be just and fair with them. Now think about what that might have meant practically. Might that have meant give them the proper compensation for the work they're doing? Don't, don't just say, well, this is minimum wage. This is what all the other slave owners are giving. No, be fair and just pay them what they deserve. Don't take advantage of them failing to pay them, just keeping them alive with food and water. No, give them what is owed to them. More than that, it might also refer, as one commentator says, to the harsh measures of repression and victimization. In other words, think about the beatings. Think about just the lack of respect as a human being that the slaves would have had. And Paul might be saying, don't do that. Don't do them. Treat them with fairness and equity. They aren't cattle to be whipped into shape. They are, that's a living, breathing person. More importantly, if they are a Christian, they're your brother or sister in Christ. You are equal before the throne of God. Regardless of the details of application that Paul had in mind here, surely the directive was based on Jesus' own teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? It is your slave, dear master. It is your very slave. He's saying this in a culture where legally masters virtually had no obligation for their slaves. No one was concerned for their rights. No one was concerned for their well-being. But Paul says, you're to be different than that. You're to be different than that. Recent biography of Steve Jobs, who passed away, recently came out and was summarized by one person like this, a very simple sentence. So this will prevent you from having to read the book unless you really want to. Jobs was a genius and a jerk. And that's it. That's the sentence. 
And, and the point was, you, you see, the, the man was a genius when it came to technology. He knew innovation and invention. He could see the future and everything else. But when it came to people, he was an absolute jerk. He just did not see them as having the same level of worth as he did. In fact, when you look at his, uh, unpack his, his Eastern views uh, of, of mysticism and spiritual enlightenment, he literally had a God, a God complex. He thought that spiritually he was more evolved than those around him. Therefore, th- th- they were beneath him and not worth uh, his time uh, or, or to be shown the same kind of dignity that he deserved for himself. Pretty wild stuff, and yet it's certainly the evidence of pride and the sin that can, that can grow out of that. Therefore, just as another side note, freebie here, uh, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Paul said, get rid of this thorn because I want to be able to do this ministry and this, this, what I believe some kind of physical problem was hindering him. And God says, if I take that away, your head's going to explode with pride and you're no good to anybody. I've given you this messenger of Satan. I've given you this thorn, this, this pointy, irritating, handicapping thing so that you will be humble and usable before me. That's the kind of attitude that, that we should have. Apparently, though, he was a genius with technology. He was terrible with people. He never gave to charity. It's amazing. You see Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs, whatever you think of them personally or, or the Windows versus Apple thing, I don't care. But Bill and Melinda Gates have just given away millions upon millions of charities. Jobs never once gave a penny to charity, as far as the biographer could tell. In fact, his own wife worked for, helped run a charity. He never donated to it. He just didn't care about people. Who cares? Give me the money. He was in college, and they had this, him and his buddy would make this device that got them free long distance from the phone company. It cost them like, like three and a quarter to make. They charged $65 to college students for it. Just give me the money. That's all Jobs was worried about. He was brilliant, but he was a bore when it came to the worth of a person. And Paul condemns such treatment of workers. Thinking more specifically today, I think we could broaden that, though, couldn't we? Not just how you talk to them, not just how you verbally shouldn't berate them, but treat them with dignity. How about a manager who tells you to do something that's dishonest? How, how, about, how about a manager who doesn't treat you equity, uh, equi- uh, with equability be, be, because they want you to have a hand in their deceitfulness, whether it's somehow uh, undermining a, a, a neighboring company in a way that's dirty and underhanded or perhaps cheating customers or pushing products that they don't need and you know they can't afford, or perhaps it's some kind of tax evasion. Whatever it is, Paul says... I think broadly, point out the application there, we should, managers should not expect those kinds of things of their workers. They should not lead them astray into sin. They need to view and treat with equity the whole person. And in all of this, Paul is telling the masters what? You can't just be like those around you. You can't just, you can't just hoist the colors of your ship based upon that, that, you, that is going on around you that everybody else is doing. You have got to, to sail a different path because Christ is the captain of your faith. He is the author of your salvation. He is the, he is the model that you are meant to imitate. You cannot act like the master in the house next door. You must act like your own master in heaven. And this leads to the last thing. We must manage with accountability. We must manage with accountability. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Think about the implication there. If you have a master, what are you? A slave. He's telling earthly masters who have slaves, remember, you're a slave too. Because you have a heavenly master, Christ. 
Paul reminds them, though they are masters of men in this life, they themselves are a master in heaven, even the Lord Christ himself, to whom they will one day have to give an account. Implicitly, there is a reminder there. Come back to the gospel and remember its implications for your life. Do you remember the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 18? Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle the accounts of the servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now that may seem like a lot to us, but we don't have any idea unless we know how much a talent is. Do you know how much a talent is? 20 years wages for one laborer. Now think about what, what Jesus is saying. I mean, he's exaggerating for a point. This man owes 10,000 times 20 years wages to this king. I mean, how do you even get in debt that much? I mean, he's trying to make a point here, so keep that massive figure in mind. The master finds this servant who owes 10,000 talents, and and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But... When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. How much is that? A denarii is one day's wage. Now you see the contrast? 10,000 times 20 years wages and a hundred days of wage. When this man found his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii, seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and reported their master all that had taken place, the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now, Jesus in the context is talking about the fact that we are to forgive others. But where does he root it in? The example of God himself who forgives the unpayable debt of our sin against him. And he says, when you have been forgiven that much, how can you not forgive others? The principle is the same. When you have been treated with such grace and love and mercy and patience and care, when you've been provided for in the way that your Heavenly Father has provided for you, how can you turn around and treat someone else so harshly? You are accountable for your actions, he is telling the managers, because you will one day stand before your master. Should you not also treat your slaves the same way you yourself have been treated by your heavenly master? That's the argument that Paul's making. Every known culture in history had slavery before Paul's day. It was an assumed practice. But what's interesting is this. Once Christianity exploded in the the Roman Empire, slavery began to wane. In fact, historians can show that where Christianity took root and grew culturally, slavery eventually went away, either formally abolished or simply was reduced to nothing in terms of the number of slaves that were held. Why? Because when Christians were gripped by the gospel and its implications for their life, slavery just didn't make sense. How can it be? When the one who is worshipped is the one who said, 
I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Likewise today, whether we are a common laborer or in a position of managing others who work for us, may we look to the example of Christ himself and the transforming power of the gospel to shape not just a, an, an idealized theology of work, but the nitty-gritty understanding of how we're about to go about our daily lives living for the master who bought us with the price of the precious blood of his own son. Father, we come before you now as our master and Lord. God, we are your servants. We are your slaves. We pray that we would serve you diligently in reflection of the great love that you have showed us. We are not just your slaves. We are your sons. God, we thank you for that. And we pray that in all of our dealings with people, whether we work for somebody else or people work for us, that God, it would be clear we are a gospel-shaped people. That our understanding of work and labor comes not from the culture around us, not from our own failed and fallen ideas, but from the very word that you have given to us, even the gospel of Christ. We pray all these things in the name of and for the glory of your Son. Amen.